Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce the moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to this program today, Emerging Treatments for Metastatic Melanoma, and this is part two of Living with Advanced Skin Cancer and Melanoma. And I have to say that we're delighted to have all of you on the call today, and this is a partnership between the lymphoma, between the Melanoma Research Foundation, sorry, Melanoma Research Foundation and uh, Cancer Care, and we're delighted to be partnering with the Melanoma Research Foundation, and we'll probably be partnering with them on many of our melanoma-specific programs, so we're very delighted to be working with them, and you'll be hearing more about that organization shortly. Now, um, today's program is uh, supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of this two-part series, and as well as, actually it's a three-part series, as well as um, uh, uh, as well as the um, as many other programs that we offer at Cancer Care. Now, on the program today, we have over 197 participants who come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Croatia, France, India, Iraq, Poland, and United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and we are delighted that, that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I would like to ask all of you a few uh, questions that really will help us to better inform these programs as we go forward. Um, so your responses to these questions really help us to, to better develop programs in, in your behalf. And so those of you who are live streaming the program, you will be able to see the questions and just rate them. It's really a kind of rating scale. So I'm going to start with the first question. On a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand diagnosing and staging in metastatic melanoma. Again, 1 is the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand new treatment approaches, including the role of immunotherapy for metastatic melanoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then the next question is, I understand how to manage the side effects, symptoms, discomfort, pain, and care of the skin during cancer treatments for metastatic melanoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. I understand targeted therapy and the role of precision medicine in metastatic melanoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this, this will be the last question. I understand the significance of clinical trials 
for metastatic melanoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really will help us um, to better understand your knowledge um, coming into this program. And now it's really my pleasure to move on and introduce our speakers. And our first speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. And Dr. Daniels is Professor of Medicine, UC San Diego Morris Cancer Center. Dr. Daniels will be addressing an overview of metastatic melanoma, including diagnosing and staging in the context of COVID-19, new treatment approaches, targeted therapy and the role of precision medicine, the role of immunotherapy, and key questions to ask when communicating with your healthcare team. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, Cancer Care for having this, and of course, um, Melanoma Research Foundation for partnering and getting the message out. Um, so I'll spend 15 minutes on the topics Carolyn just outlined, giving an overview of melanoma. Um, melanoma, um, I'm going to talk mostly about uh, the melanoma that's most common, and that's the one that originates on the skin. But I will say that melanoma happens anywhere that a pigment cell, a melanocyte, may be, and that happens in the eyes, happens in the gut. Uh, so these are ocular or mucosal melanomas. They're less common, but they are treated as melanomas, um, although they have some differences. And so because skin is more common and where a lot of people's interests are, I'm going to just focus on skin melanoma. So as Carolyn mentioned, um, we have a staging system in melanoma. Um, when a patient's seen by their provider or they notice a skin lesion that's changing or different than the rest of their skin lesions and get it evaluated, um, there'll be an initial assessment to see if a biopsy is warranted. Um, if a biopsy is done, what the pathologist is looking at is, does this lesion have the characteristics of a melanoma, melanocytes and certain other things, but also, if it does, um, then they start um, going down their, their checklist. How deep does it invade? What are some of the characteristics about the cells? Um, are they rapidly dividing, for example? Or have they damaged the surface of the skin and are what we call ulcerated? And so these are some of the characteristics that go into our first part of staging, which is a T-score or depth score. Next along is an assessment of, okay, if we have a lesion that's a melanoma, is there any sign that it's spread? And so talking to a patient, seeing how their health has been, doing an exam for particularly around where the lesion is and any um, lymph nodes that may be in the area. So this would be um, early on in kind of assessing a melanoma. Depending on what the provider's hearing, they may or may not move to imaging that's needed to help stage a, a melanoma. Fortunately, most of the time, melanomas are caught in a very early stage where routine imaging is not necessarily performed, um, but that's what your healthcare providers, um, what's going through their mind at that moment. Do they need to, um, to do any extra imaging? And so with that, uh, we get what's called a clinical stage or an impression of uh, how extensive the melanoma is. And uh, most of the time, um, surgery is the next uh, thing that's recommended. 
and the surgeon will go ahead and, depending on some of the characteristics, recommend either a wide excision of the area or a wide excision and a lymph node evaluation, what's termed um, as a sentinel lymph node. And this, this procedure has um, really come into melanoma care over the last couple of decades and has um, really decreased um, some of the mortality, or not mortality, but the um, side effects from the surgeries that we used to have. And so once all this is done with the initial evaluation and treatment of the of the primary lesion or the melanoma, then we get to what we call our final stage because we have all the information we need. We have the true depth of the lesion. We have if there were lymph nodes involved. And we have, if, if needed, we've done some scans and shown if there's any extent beyond that area. And so this, this final stage um, is what people are usually familiar with. Uh, they'll hear the numbers stage one or stage two. That's uh, a lesion that's not having any lymph nodes involved or any spread beyond the primary lesion. Or stage three, if there's uh, lymph nodes involved um, or if there's um, extension into the lymph channels. Or stage four, um, it's uncommon, but it does happen at presentation. And patients with stage four have evidence that it's spread through the bloodstream already. Um, so that's our general staging overview of, of melanoma. It's, it's similar to other cancer types um, in the one, two, three, four category, but each cancer has its own unique approaches. So new treatment approaches, um, it depends on what you mean by new. Um, certainly, I've described that surgery's changed a little bit over the years. We've refined how wide uh, an excision is, is needed or how much of the lymph nodes need to be taken out. And some of that's also in conjunction with the advances in systemic therapies or the ones that people get either by mouth or in the vein. And these things some people might call chemo. Um, I always like to qualify that most people think of chemotherapy as um, cytotoxic chemotherapy that's used in other tumor types. For the most part, that's not used in melanomas. Um, it's rarely uh, used um, in this day and age. We use what's called targeted therapies, I'll talk about, and immune therapies, which I'll uh, elaborate a little bit on. So targeted therapies are um, what's termed as precision medicine, that nowadays we can sequence a tumor's DNA, um, not necessarily the patient's DNA, but actually the tumor's DNA, where it's arisen with these mutations that turn it into cancer. And for a, a large number of melanoma patients, we know which gene has been changed to turn on the cancerous process. And for one of the most common, BRAF, uh, we now have a medication for the last several years that turns off that activating mutation and causes the cells to die. And the results can be pretty dramatic. It was a big advancement in the field um, when it came out a few years ago in that um, patients um, started taking these inhibitors if they had the right mutation in their tumor and they would see um, clinical benefit, uh, pain uh, would be better or their tumors would stop shrinking uh, within days. Um, of uh, starting these medications. So that's targeted therapy. Um, while they work well um, in, in 
at least the initial phases, they have some limitations in that um, certainly every drug has some sort of side effect, and these are no different, so sun sensitivity, um, aches, um, rashes. So, in fact, uh, a lot of patients on BRAF, we, we co-manage with dermatology uh, because of some of the skin changes. Um, but for me, the biggest um, challenge is that um, these drugs don't control the disease uh, forever. And so patients are taking these medications, and ultimately the tumor becomes resistant to them. And so you'll hear in the next presentation um, some of the newer things targeting either alternative pathways to BRAF or trying to address what happens when, they when uh, tumor cells become resistant to the BRAF. So there's some exciting changes there uh, that we will hear about. Uh, the other main systemic treatment are immune therapies. Everybody's heard of Keytruda and Optivo, um, uh, and I will call them Pembrolizumab and Nivolumab, but they're uh, more common generic names. There's also Yervoy or Ipilimumab, um, and these target what are called checkpoints of the immune system. So your immune system's normal in a patient with cancer, um, but sometimes uh, the tumor cells have learned a way to cloak themselves or turn off uh, the immune response or in some other way evade the immune system. And these checkpoints are one way that they do it. They put up um, little stop signs for the immune system. Um, these medications, uh, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, ipilimumab, are addressing these stop signs or uh, checkpoints. And so as our understanding of what's going on in the tumor microenvironment evolves, um, we're getting more and more tools to, to learn what are these checkpoints or barriers to the immune treatment. What was presented um, last month, or actually still this month, um, at ASCO of 2021, our annual meeting, uh, was long-term follow-up for the combination that um, for a lot of patients is the first choice for metastatic disease, and that's a combination of two immune drugs, um, ipilimumab and nivolumab. And with six and a half years of follow-up, um, we're starting to see that patients um, have um, what we've all been looking for, which is um, treatment that gets rid of tumor, and then you get rid of the treatment and the tumor stays away. And so with a limited exposure to these immune therapies, we're seeing patients years out not needing any other therapy, and yet the cancer is not coming back. So again, this is a dramatic change over the last decade of what's been available for melanoma patients. And I wish I could say that uh, the, that combination or similar immune modulators um, work for everybody. They don't. So again, uh, we're going to hear um, some new um, new treatments that are coming up for those patients that aren't addressed either initially by uh, the drugs or become resistant to the drugs. Uh, but certainly um, uh, progress is being made almost on a daily basis. So that's basically an overview for advanced disease. I will make a comment that um, as we're getting more and more effective drugs and figuring out when and where to use them, we're changing kind of how we apply them. For example, a patient that has gone through their primary surgery um, and has all their tumor taken out, but we know they have a, a risk of uh, cancer coming back, we can give them um, immune therapies or targeted therapies to lower that risk. 
So we took it a step further, and again, uh, perhaps um, it's going to be mentioned um, in the next uh, session, is what's called neoadjuvant treatment, where a patient will come in and they'll have um, a stage 3 melanoma where uh, we know we can cure them, but um, the risk of the disease coming back is high enough where we'd want to give them extra therapy afterwards. Now we give them that therapy before the surgery. This is an experimental um, area right now, trying to see if that works better, but the data is starting to look um, pretty hopeful that uh, we can change where we're applying some of our systemic therapies to the management of, of patients. So I'm going to um, wrap up with you know, what questions um, do you want to ask? And those questions are really going to depend on um, are, you, are you at the level of talking to a dermatologist about a lesion that they just found, or are you sitting with a medical oncologist or a surgical oncologist and they're proposing their plan? For any of them, uh, you want to ask them, you know, what is the goal of, of the therapy that's being proposed? Um, because for medical oncology, that goal has changed. Um, as I said, we now have long-term data that follow uh, a follow-up for patients with some of these therapies where the disease isn't coming back. And so my goal has shifted, um, even in advanced stage uh, melanoma patients where it's spread uh, throughout the body, my goal is uh, to cure. And that means that I'm going to pick therapies that have certain risks and benefits in them. And uh, you want your provider to explain what their goal is and why they're doing something. So another good question to always ask is when when you go through the choices, um, there's always choices about uh, therapies because um, nowadays we have all these targeted and immune modulators. So uh, it, I think it's a very reasonable question to ask. What would you do and why? Um, that why is the important one. And that why might vary between what your provider's thinking and what you're thinking. And so it's always good to be on the same page as to, um, you know, what's important to you. Um, um, probably is the same as what's going on with your provider, but uh, it's best to check that out and make sure everybody's on the same page. And then, um, again, as I alluded to in the beginning, all these therapies um, have potential uh, side effects. And so what are the possible toxicities and what are my resources? And some of the resources I'll just give a shout out to our Cancer Care and uh, Melanoma Research Foundation. Um, so both have um, web-based resources as well as what your uh, provider's uh, going to give to you. And so who to call um, if something, if, you know, in, on the weekend or in the evening you have questions, you know, what are my resources and what are my support numbers um, that are available to me? So with that, I'll uh, wrap up, and uh, we can move on to our second presentation. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was really excellent, and that was wonderful. You mentioned about the weekends and evenings and holidays, because that's when things seem to happen. So to be sure you knew uh, you know, how to reach your support team at that at those times as well. Excellent presentation, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Richard Carvajal, and Dr. Carvajal will be addressing. Um, is, is actually Associate Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, Co-Leader Precision Oncology and Systems Biology Program, Director Experimental Therapeutics, Director Melanoma Service, Columbia University Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Carvajal will be addressing clinical trial updates in the context of COVID-19, follow-up care, 
tips for caring for your skin during cancer treatments, controlling side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of prepared questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Carvajal. Carolyn, thank you so much. And I'd, I'd like to uh, echo Dr. Daniels' um, just thanks to uh, Cancer Care and to the MRF for putting this together. I think it's so critical that we have forums when we can speak directly to the patients and the caretakers um, about their disease and, and how to move forward in this kind of complex, uh, scary sometimes um, situation. Um, but I do have a long list of topics that um, I wanted to kind of address. And the first um, centers around clinical trials. And, you know, I, I would start off by saying um, that, you know, when I started treating patients with melanoma um, in 2004, 2005, um, you know, the goal when we sat down and said, what are we trying to, to, to achieve here for our patients with metastatic disease? Um, you know, although, you know, cure, I guess, was possible, that was always, always unlikely. Uh, with the therapies we had at the time. And rather, what we talked about was disease control, maintaining quality of life, and so forth. Um, but since that time, um, based on the development of a number of, of just tremendously active therapies, whether they be immunotherapies or targeted therapies, as Dr. Daniel said, um, our goal has shifted from one of disease control to, to one of cure. And that 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 is... It's it's a remarkable change <laughs> in, in a good way. And so how did we get there? Well, it's interesting. If we look at the number of um, treatments we had for metastatic melanoma in 2005, or frankly, even in 2010, we really only had three FDA-approved drugs or regimens, right? And, and that's why um, outcomes were so challenging. Um, but since that time, there have been a dozen new therapies approved, right? And that's just over the course of 10 years. Um, and with those new therapies have come the significant advances uh, and improvements in, in patient outcomes. So how did we get there? How do we develop those therapies? Well, we developed those therapies through clinical trials. And so the trials that we were conducting, right, when I started in 2004, 2005, um, those are the trials that led to the approvals of these new therapies in 2011 and so on. So the trials that we were doing in the early 2000s were um, the curative therapies that we were able to offer patients in the 2000, you know, 10 to 20 and, and currently. Why do I say that? I say that because um, I think for all patients who are diagnosed with cancer, whether it be melanoma or, or whatever, I, I would urge everyone to talk to their oncologists, their providers about, uh, about clinical trials you know, what, what is available? Um, you know, should we think about doing a novel therapy? What does that entail? Um, clinical trials are not for everyone, um, but again, I would urge you to just at least explore them. Um, so it turns out that, you know, currently there are over a thousand drugs, a thousand vaccines, a thousand therapies for cancer that are currently in development, which is really, really remarkable. And so that tells me that the progress we've made over the past 20 years will continue. Um, the way we develop those therapies, it's a, it's a long and complicated process. And just, you know, to just kind of briefly go through that process, there are different phases of clinical trials you might hear about. 
um, starting from phase zero trials to phase one, two, three, and four. Um, the early phase trials, the phase zero and phase one trials, are kind of the early phase studies where um, sometimes it's the first time we're testing these novel drugs in, in people, right? So they're, they're very, very experimental. Um, what I will say is that over the past 15, 20 years, the way we've um, developed those trials and co conducted, conducted them has changed dramatically. And so, you know, even though these are what we would call first-in-demand highly experimental um, studies, we're able to, to provide clinical benefit to, um, you know, in some series, up to 20% of people that we put on those studies. And typically, those are people who, ha who have had their cancer grow on all of the standardly available treatments and even other clinical trials. Um, the phase three trials are the big randomized trials uh, where patients are randomized to the new treatment versus standards of care, right? And people are always concerned about placebo. It's, you know, it's rare that we do place real placebos. Rather, what we give them is what would be normal care. So everyone gets normal care and at least normal care and some patients get the experimental therapy. Um, when I think about these clinical trials, you know, I tend to prioritize the trials where there's the most data, and that tends to be the later phase trials. And so I tend to say, look, if there's a good phase three trial, maybe we should do that. Um, if not, maybe we'll consider a good phase two trial. If not, maybe we'll consider a good phase one trial. Um, and, you know, these trials are really important. You know, we've, we've approved a number of therapies for melanoma, um, and, you know, there continue to be new and effective therapies. Um, Dr. Daniel spoke about these immunotherapies targeting things like PD-1 or CTLA-4, but there are other immune molecules that are important in controlling how the immune system can recognize and attack your cancer. Um, and, and one of those molecules of increasing importance is something called LAG3, L-A-G-3. Um, and this is a molecule that seems to be increased in immune cells as they get less functional and less active. And if we attack that lag three molecule, we're able to kind of turn those immune cells back on and have them fight cancer. Um, and at the big cancer meeting, the big ASCO meeting that we just had, um, the phase three trial um, of, of, of um, that lag three antibody combined with nivolumab, the anti-PD-1 antibody, um, was compared to nivolumab alone. And that combination of lag three plus PD-1 again, it's better. And I say that because, you know, these trials are still making uh, impactful differences, improving the outcomes for our patients. Um, there are a number of new treatments like this relatlimab, this LAG3 um, drug that I think are looking very, very promising and are fairly in advanced in development, um, including things, um, this drug called lifolusol, which is this type of cellular therapy where we extract the immune cells from your own tumor, um, grow them in large numbers outside of the body, and then reinfuse them. Um, there are other drugs like lenvatinib, which blocks blood vessel production, which when we combine it with immunotherapy, seems to make that immunotherapy work better. And, and the list goes on and on. So again, I, I think bottom line is, I would just urge you to talk to your, your um, physician about you know, what trials might be available. Is it something you want to do? Even if you don't do it, just think about it. Um, well, I guess the topic actually had to do with COVID, <laughs> so clinical trial up updates in the context of COVID. And I guess what I would say there is, 
um, certainly in the beginning of the pandemic, um, it was still very important to all of us to provide our patients access to these novel therapies. And yet, um, there were challenges with, um, with people traveling. There were challenges with having people um, in our, you know, infusion centers that, you know, might be too crowded and so forth. And so, you know, we modified the way we did clinical trials so that we could still treat our patients and minimize the risk of COVID. And thankfully, I think at our hospital, um, I suspect at Dr. Daniels Hospital and many of them, you know, because of the decrease in case numbers, we're, we're going more towards a normal kind of functional um, situation. Um, and in part, that's because of the, um, you know, fairly high rate of vaccination. For instance, here in, in New York City, our vaccination rates are um, up around 70% of all eligible adults. Um, and, and certainly for all of our cancer patients, we, we um, highly recommend um, that um, you do get your COVID vaccine. Uh, we have looked at how people with cancer do if they get COVID and they get sicker. And so if we can prevent that from happening to our cancer patients, obviously it's something we want to do. The best thing that you can do is go ahead and get vaccinated. Um, we can time the vaccination um, and we can give it concurrently with immunotherapy or targeted therapy, it's, it, it's, it's fine. Um, and again, so another bullet point is I would say, you know, if you haven't been vaccinated, I would urge you to, um, to go ahead and do that. Um, so moving on to the next topic, which is, is follow-up care. What I'm going to do is talk about follow-up care um, uh, and, and toxicity monitoring. Um, and I'm going to merge that together. Um, because, you know, as we treat our patients with immunotherapy, as we treat our patients with targeted therapy, we know um, that there's, you know, reasonable risk of side effects developing. Um, and if we look at, for instance, the combination of, of um, um, nivolumab and ipilimumab, that combined checkpoint blockade therapy, which is our aggressive immunotherapy that many of us tend to do um, as, as first or second line for our, our patients with advanced disease, we know that over half of patients will get some sort of side effect that can be significant that we have to actively do something to control. Um, and so personally, when I do that aggressive regimen, um, and I think each provider does it a little bit differently, but I, I do tend to do um, um, weekly um, telemed calls uh, in between the, the treatment, which is infused every three weeks, just to make sure that the patients are doing well. And the side effects that we can see um, are um, immunologic side effects affecting the skin. It can be things like rash and itching. It can be things like diarrhea. It can be inflammation of the lungs. It can be inflammation of really virtually any part of the body. Um, <clears throat> if you're being treated with immunotherapy and develop um, some sort of side effect or just not feeling well, um, I think it's very, very important that you let your physician know as soon as possible, that you don't try to tough it out. Um, the reason for that is uh, what we found is um, the longer these side effects go on for before we address it, the harder it is to ultimately control. Uh, and so what we find is that, for instance, if a patient develops a little bit of um, stomach upset, a little bit of increased stool frequency, if they just let that go, it will get worse and worse um, to the point that if we don't catch it soon enough and start um, medicine to um, shut down the immune system temporarily, um, patients are at high risk of um, requiring admission to 
control those side effects. Similarly, when we look at the um, targeted therapies, the pills that shut off, shut off that MAP kinase pathway, these can frequently have side effects that um, can include rash and fevers and GI upset. Um, interestingly, um, you know, while the side effects of the immunotherapy um, tend to continue and even get worse unless we actively stop it, um, with the side effects that occur with the pills, frequently if we stop the pills or reduce the doses, the side effects will go away. Um, and so I say that again because if you are on these target therapies and you develop an issue like rash or uh, diarrhea or fevers, again, you know, you don't have to suffer through it. There, there are things that we can do to make it better, which may include doing treatment breaks, um, reducing the doses, or switching to a different pill regimen to one that might be more tolerable for you. Um, I think, you know, I only have a few few more minutes left. I, I guess the last topic I want to um, just touch touch on is um, the telehealth visits that that have really taken off um, since the COVID pandemic began. Um, I, I think in many ways, um, um, you know, one of the positives from this. Um, uh, COVID um, situation has been the rapid acceleration of telehealth visits. I think there are a lot of positives with this. Um, you know, from, from your perspective, from the patient perspective, I think the convenience is incredible to not have to travel for the doctor's appointments. It's incredible um, to be able to have as many family members around um, join in the call. Um, you know, sometimes I have Zoom telemed visits with um, a half dozen family members across the country that joined the visit. Um, I think all of that are, are, you know, really great benefits for for um, for our patients. Um, there are some negatives to the telemeds, right? These telemed visits, um, when we do them, right, we're not able to do good physical examinations. It, it's hard to see skin lesions or rashes very, very well. Um, you know, we're not able to do blood work or the EKGs um, at the same time, right? So those are all negatives. But I, I think I think what that means is some visits are very appropriate for telemed visits. If I'm worried and I just want to check on a patient for a possible side effect, I can just, you know, hop on the computer and say, hey, Mr. Jones, how are you doing? You know, are you eating okay? Are your bowels normal? Perfect for telemed. Um, I think if I'm worried, if someone is sick, if I really need to lay hands on them and do a good examination, then I'll ask them to come in. Um, to to pre pre prepare for these um, telemedicine visits, you know, I think the biggest challenge, to be honest, is the technology. Um, every hospital, every practitioner um, may be using different systems. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I've got these incredibly bright patients um, but sometimes they just can't log on. <laughs> and so sometimes I'll switch to a phone call at the last minute, and that's completely fine. Um, but I think the key is to try to log in a few minutes early, um, get used to the system, make sure it works. Um, as with a regular visit, I would urge you to just kind of write down your questions, make sure there's a, you know what you want to discuss so we can touch on all the, the important points. Um, and, and again, if there's something that needs an in-person visit, that's something that we can always set up. Um, set up for a subsequent visit. So, you know, I think I think my time's up, Carolyn. Um, thank you again for the invitation and, and certainly happy to um, take any questions at the end of the session.
Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Carmel. That was really outstanding, and you covered a lot of topics and uh, very thoroughly, and I know there will be questions for you um, um, at the end of the program, so thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker um, is uh, Ms. Amy Marbo, and Ms. Marbo is an oncology nurse. She's education officer of the Melanoma Research Foundation. And Ms. Marbo will be addressing Melanoma Research Foundation's MRF free programs and services, and I'll be giving you a contact information about how to get in touch with them. But it's really our pleasure to be partnering with uh, Melanoma Research Foundation, and we're hoping to partner with them going forward on other uh, melanoma-focused programs that we do. So it's my great pleasure to turn this program to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Marbo. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to uh, be with you all today representing the Melanoma Research Foundation. Um, I'm so glad uh, to also be uh, joined with Dr. Daniels and Dr. Carvajal um, to, uh, make the, uh, to help present this information regarding uh, melanoma resources that the Melanoma Research Foundation uh, can provide for, for patients, caregivers, uh, and the community. Uh, just a little bit of background about the Melanoma Research Foundation. Uh, this is actually our 25th anniversary. Uh, we were founded in 1996 uh, by a patient. Uh, she was a melanoma patient. Um, and she uh, was very passionate about bringing uh, research, uh, new research initiatives uh, to melanoma. And so she started this foundation. So obviously research is a big part of our mission, but we also uh, focus uh, very much so on education as well as advocacy. So with respect to our advocacy work, we have uh, a lot of uh, activities surrounding uh, Hill Day, which is uh, helping to uh, educate patients and the caregivers regarding uh, lobbying to their congressmen and women, to their senators, to their at the state level and at the federal level, um, to really help to advance melanoma research, uh, to you know, on a on a more statewide and, and federal level. We also have a lot of education opportunities, uh, which obviously is my wheelhouse as the education officer for the Melanoma Research Foundation. We uh, focus on all aspects of melanoma, from prevention to survivorship and everything in between. So with, uh, especially focusing this year on survivorship. So cancer survivorship is a very uh, important topic in the cancer community as well as the melanoma community. Uh, there's been so many new treatment options, as Dr. Daniels and Dr. Carvajal um, outlined earlier, that are helping melanoma patients. And so uh, with, with all of these advances, uh, cancer survivorship uh, is uh, such an important topic. We are focusing a new initiative with survivorship, as I mentioned. Uh, we'll be uh, hosting several uh, online and in-person events um, over the next uh, six months. Uh, and you can learn more about those opportunities on our website at melanoma.org, uh, an easy website to remember. Um, we also are always happy to uh, with, uh, provide any uh, information uh, by email. And you can reach me at education at melanoma.org with any questions uh, regarding uh, our website, regarding our, our resources, and, and uh, anything that we can help with. Two great features on our website that I always like to highlight is our clinical trials finder. So Dr. Carvajal was speaking about the importance of clinical trials. Um, Dr. Daniels was as well. Uh, our clinical trials finder can help uh, patients find a clinical trial that might be appropriate for them, uh, and it helps to uh, connect them with a, a resource that might be able to guide them in the best direction where those clinical trials might be located if they're not located um, at the cancer center that they're being treated at. We also have a treatment center finder, and that uh, resource is uh, highlights uh, practices around the United States 
um, that might be um, I, uh, that that might have um, advanced treatment options, clinical trials, um, things of that nature. Uh, so leaders in the melanoma field, if you will, um, and highlights um, those cancer centers and where uh, second opinions um, or other treatment options might be available. So I, I always like to highlight those two options. But if you go to our website, again, melanoma.org, you'll be able to find those uh, two main resources um, on, on our website. Uh, with that, I'll turn it back over to Carolyn. Again, we're so happy to be partnering uh, with uh, Cancer Care on this initiative today. Uh, um, and as Carolyn said, we're uh, looking forward to partnering with, uh, with them on other uh, projects as well. So with that, I'll turn it over to Carolyn, and I'm sure um, that we'll have some questions, and I'm always happy to uh, point people in the right direction with respect to our resources. Oh, thank you so much, um, uh, Ms. Barbara. That was really wonderful. And I have to say that the um, the clinical trial finder and the treatment center finder, what a gift that is. So I definitely um, – and I just want to mention to everybody that um, at the end of today's program, I'll probably tomorrow – well, actually, it's probably Monday, sorry. Monday, you'll be receiving, actually, um, a SurveyMonkey evaluation of the program, which we appreciate your completing. However, that will also include any link or resource that we mentioned during the program, and even some that we haven't. But we're certainly going to highlight the resources for the Melanoma Research Foundation um, so that you have their website, their info line, their helpline, you'll have all the information to reach them. But those particular um, initiatives are really important when you're trying to find um, a clinical trial or you're trying to find a treatment center near you. That's really amazing. So um, thank you so much, um, Ms. Marber, for, for highlighting those particular programs. And of course, there's so many other things you do as well. Um, and. Uh, I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care, and I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care. Um, and so Cancer Care um, is a national organization founded in 1944, and it's been around for about 77 years, and it's, um, it offers a number of free programs and services. And so let me go over what those are. And those programs and services are primarily staffed by oncology social workers. They're trained in uh, masters in social work, and they are specializing in oncology social work. And so, um, and, and and people call, we have about 35 um, oncology social workers at this point. Um, we have increased the number of our staff um, during this past year and a half during COVID, and we continue to see the need, so it's, that, that staff will continue and seem to be growing programs, actually. Um, and I think that um, um, and many people call us on our, our hope line, which is an 800 number. Again, you'll be getting all that information in SurveyMonkey. Some of you may have gotten already when you signed up for the program as well. Um, however, um, and so often when you call our, our number or go to our website and post a question, one of our oncology socials will respond to you pretty immediately. And so the um, during business hours, Monday through Friday, um, uh, Eastern time. So, but basically what we offer is, first of all, support. People who call often have questions, concerns, and we will address those. We also do offer practical and financial assistance, which has been a very important part of cancer care from its inception. There's no question that people uh, living with any type of cancer, with melanoma, with any type of cancer at all, um, benefit from, uh, you know, having access to some additional financial help, particularly 
this past year and a half as well. And we have a co-payment assistance foundation. We are not the only co-payment assistance foundation program in the country, and indeed if our co-payment foundation doesn't have what you need, they will refer you to one that does. So that's just to be aware of that. And I believe you can go to more than one co-pay foundation as long as you get your needs met. Um, and in terms of other programs, we offer a case management uh, service, and that includes really um, helping you to find a resource that we don't provide. So, um, and we also have initiated a time to screen because during this past year and a half, people have really not been going in for regular screening, and so um, that particular uh, group is really helping people to connect up and, and begin to think about really getting back to a, a more normative and and what we would, what has always been a recommended screening uh, time. Many people have not been screened for some of the major cancers from melanoma or for any of the cancers uh, that are out there. Um, and they also do help you to get a resource. So if we don't have it, what they'll do is they'll virtually take you, they'll go with you um, on the phone or online to an organization that we think should provide that service. It could be either in your community or it could be um, a, a regional one or a national one and um, connect you to that resource. And if that doesn't work, we'll keep trying until they get you to the resource you need. Um, and we also have online support groups, which people really seem to like. Um, an online support group is runs 24 hours a day. People can post any time of the day or night in their time zone. Um, those are primarily for people in the United States. And um, those groups are very popular, um, and indeed, the social worker does moderate it, of course, during business hours, 9 to, nine to 5, um, Monday through Friday, but nevertheless, um, they are wonderful ways to get support, and they are for um, all different types of cancer, and for and also we have specific groups for different um, groupings of people, for example, young adults or caregivers, or young adults who are caregivers, older adults who are caregivers, an older adult program, um, middle-aged adults uh, with different types of cancers. So um, we really try to have uh, different programs for different people who have different needs. We also offer these type of workshops, about 75 per year, on different types of cancers or different types of situations that people are dealing with. Um, and, of course, we do also have uh, publications that are often based on these programs. Um, so um, before we take uh, move on to Q&A, I would like to ask you just a few um, questions as we um, just to get a sense of um, where you are now with your information that you may have gained from the program. So I'm going to start with, um, and these are all questions that if you're live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to actually rate the questions. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about my knowledge of the important role of staging and diagnosing in metastatic melanoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about my knowledge of new treatment approaches, including the role of immunotherapy for metastatic melanoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the treatment cycles 
symptoms, discomfort, pain, and cure of the skin during the treatment for metastatic melanoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of targeted therapy and the role of precision medicine in metastatic melanoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest. And the last question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for metastatic melanoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really will help us going forward to plan, we're planning lots of programs, um, and we're, we, we really appreciate hearing from you on these, this type of uh, questions in terms of your responses, to be sure that we're planning the programs that most need, meet your needs. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board and also to, to tell you how to queue up to ask an online question. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. We have a question from one of our online participants. Um, I had three episodes of skin um, cancer, only melanoma. Should I be doing something more than frequent exams? Um, Dr. Um, uh, Daniels, could you address that question? Yeah, sure. Um, I didn't really talk about risk factors for melanoma. Um, you know, uh, we know that people with fair skin are at higher risk. Um, there is a little bit of a gender skewing um, towards males, um, age, um, history of um, sunburns, and family history. And so when I have a patient that comes in with a history of melanoma, we talk about family history and links to either melanoma or other cancers. Um, so for example, other cancers could be uh, pancreatic cancer um, clusters um, as a family trait uh, with melanoma. Now, I'm not saying everybody with melanoma has a risk for pancreatic cancer, for sure not, um, but we look for these red flags in the family history. And so beyond the three melanomas, I'd be asking those questions. Turns out that, um, you know, as, as our knowledge of the origins of melanoma continue to advance, our technology is getting better, recently has um, come the, at least a, a, a recommendation to at least talk about um, germline testing in patients with three or more primary melanomas even if there are no other red flags out there. And so it's something that, to bring up with your provider about doing um, some of these testings. Uh, there are guidelines out there. For example, the um, NCCN um, puts out guidelines uh, for germline testing. So yes, definitely sun-safe practices, 
early detection, you know, self-exams, dermatologist, uh, family physician, um, but, you know, maybe one wants to consider um, looking at uh, other risk factors such as family risk factor. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and a question now for Dr. Carvajal, uh, similar but different. Um, why do dark spots that I have had on my body for decades all of a sudden become malignant melanoma? <laughs> well, that's that's a great question. You know, um, I think I think in in you know in about fifty percent of cases, uh, melanomas arise from pre-existing moles. Um, and, and certainly, you know, we think of ha how do moles develop. Well, it's, it's really kind of a process of genetic changes over time where one of those pigment, pigmented cells, those melanocytes in the skin, um, acquires genetic chains that kind of grow and proliferate uh, and cluster together. And so one melanocyte can ultimately become what we call a benign nevus or, or a mole. Um, and with additional changes, um, it can um, change so that it becomes um, able to spread and metastasize. And, and when it does that, that's when it becomes a true melanoma. Um, now, it's interesting that in about 50% of the cases, the melanoma will not arise from a pre-existing nevus. So that means that that melanocyte just kind of, you know, becomes cancerous a little bit more quickly, and it doesn't have to go into that um, benign nevus type, type stage. Um, you know, I think as Dr. Daniels was saying, in terms of risk factors for melanoma, we know that individuals with a number of moles are predisposed to develop melanoma. They just have an increased risk. Um, and so an individual with, with many, many moles, um, you know, in the future, we know that they're at risk for skin cancer. And that's, that's why we have them. We recommend routine dermalogic surveillance over time. I'm not sure if that answers the question, but <laughs> hopefully it's a little bit helpful. Well, I think it is, and I think it actually these are really good questions we're getting from our participants. So thank you. Thanks a lot there. Uh, I guess obviously things that trouble people. And um, and so another question now for Dr. Um, Daniels. Um, certain medications have increased sensitivities to sun exposure. Are there particular meds that increase risk to melanoma as well? Wow. This is a PhD group. Um, so, yeah, no, medications are an uh, interesting topic, um, and not just for melanoma, but also um, the general term non-melanoma skin cancers. And uh, risk of sun sensitivity, um, for sure, um, sort of medications um, and medications that we use to even treat melanoma can make you sun sensitive, um, for example, the BRAF inhibitors. Um, so some classes of medications, um, just to dive a little bit deeper into that, for example, we use medications to treat some blood um, disorders. And these, um, these medications interfere with um, the mutations that are driving those blood disorders. It turns out that those um, same pathways are involved in immune surveillance of your skin and, um, and other parts of your body. And so when we start treating um, one disease process, it turns out that we're interacting with the immune system at another level, and we see a higher rates of, uh, of certain skin cancers, including um, squamous cells and uh, melanomas. So medications, um, understanding all these interactions is pretty important. Um, 
I would say that, you know, I wouldn't worry about every medication causing that. Um, so these are very specific classes of medications, um, but it's something um, you can always review with your uh, primary physician. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, and another question uh, for Dr. Carvajal. Um, could you please comment on merging immune response biomarkers? Oh, God, brilliant question. Yeah, this is really a, a great crowd. Yeah, so, you know, biomarker development for immunotherapy has been a little bit more challenging um, than biomarker development, for instance, for targeted therapy, right? And, I, you know, we always use kind of um, the presence of BRAF mutations as a very clear biomarker for response to targeted therapy um, attacking that MAP kinase pathway. It's just been less clear for for um, immunotherapies. Um, things that we've we've looked at and are clearly associated with response are things like um, expression of this PDL1 protein. Um, the more of this protein there is, it seems the more dependent the tumor is upon that PD1 PDL1 pathway. And so, if we address that, um, there's a higher likelihood of the immunotherapy working. Um, um, I, I, importantly, we don't base decisions on that. Um, even if someone does not have a lot of PDL1 expression on their tumor, they can still derive a benefit from immunotherapy, um, but the likelihood is just a little bit less. Um, another biomarker that um, is, is clearly associated is what we call the um, tumor mutational burden. That is, how many mutations um, are present within the tumor's DNA. The more mutations there are, uh, the more likely there are what we call these neoantigens or abnormalities that, that the immune system can recognize and latch onto. And so tumors with a lot of mutations tend to be more likely to respond to immunotherapy. Um, and that, that tends to be kind of what, what's been looked at the most. But there, there are other things, for instance, these various gene expression signatures that seem to predict like response to immunotherapy. And so we'll look at uh, what we call this interferon gamma signature. Um, uh, and uh, if there's more of that, they tend to be more responsive. We can look at the tumor microenvironment um, and just look at the geography of the immune cells with the tumor cells. And we, we can look at what types of immune cells are there and what their kind of location uh, in relationship to each other or the tumor cell. And sometimes that's predictive. Um, where there's a lot of effort in what we call the microbiome, that is, what is the bacteria that is, has colonized the gut, um, and that seems, you know, seems to be very promising as a predictive biomarker. Um, but really, how to use these biomarkers um, in clinical practice, I think we're we're still trying to figure out. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, a question now for. Um, uh, for Dr. Daniels, um, if I had had skin melanoma, should I stay out of the sun? Or should I, I guess, underline what, how does the person handle the sun issue? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's a question probably that takes 30 minutes of discussion because the easy answer is to say yes. Um, as I mentioned, a history of uh, sunburns uh, will predispose um, people or mark people for a higher risk for melanoma. Um, but the, um, 
the longer discussion is, um, and I should also say that there's a clear association between the amount of sun exposure and squamous cells and basal cells, which are the number two and number one most common types of skin cancer. So there's a direct relationship. The, the relationship between melanoma and the sun is complex. Um, we, have, we get melanomas in places where the sun doesn't shine. Um, in um, non-sun exposed areas, uh, melanoma will happen. In chronic sun damaged area, melanoma will happen. And we also know that um, vitamin D deficiency is associated with uh, melanoma um, frequency, which is itself a marker of, um, in some sense, low sun exposure. So it, it's complex. I think what we all agree about is um, sun-safe practices. And sun, so what I term sun-safe practices are being normal. Um, it's not evolutionarily or biologically normal to go to a tanning bed. I think that's you know intense exposures of um, mutation-causing rays. That's probably not a good idea. It's also probably not a good idea to go out uh, for a long day and uh, be out on the water um, with your jet ski or whatever and not um, take precautions to avoid um, sun damage. But it's also normal to uh, walk outside and um, get fresh air. And so I want to say uh, we have to find that sweet spot in there where we're practicing sun-safe practices, but also living an active, healthy lifestyle because that's, at the end of the day, also very important uh, for our health. Thank you. Very balanced answer. Thank you so much. Excellent. Um, well, I, I know we have many more questions in queue, and we could continue for quite some time, but I think that um, um, we said this would be an hour program. We've gone just a little bit over, so I think we're going to um, – I'm going to begin to wrap it up. I want to thank our speakers uh, for just being so phenomenal on today's program, just really wonderful. Um, and I want to thank um, our participants for really asking such really incredible questions. We have done this program before, but I have to say the questions on this particular program were particularly um, really um, on target and really very thoughtful. So I, I want to thank you for that as well. So I do want to now comment about all of you who are, of course, um, still have questions. So for those of you who asked a question today, for those of you who had a question yet to ask, and for those of you who thought of a question during the program, all of those, I would suggest that you go back to your treating healthcare team um, and um, that you really um, have a discussion with them about the questions. Even, even though you asked a question today, take that same question back to your healthcare team. I almost see your questions here as a role play with your physician. You want to ask your physician those questions as well. And um, we also are going to give you resources that you can go to for additional information about the questions you asked. What's most important is we want to be sure you go to a very credible website for your information. We know that many of you like to get information from other places. So we'll give you the most credible resources to get information. And certainly the Melanoma Research Foundation, Cancer Care, um, these are some organizations that will definitely will lead you to in terms of giving you those, those resources. But we'll also put in a few other organizations as well. But we want you to be sure to go to places that review things this year, probably this month. You want to be sure that it's very up-to-date and it's done by a very um, major, one of what we call our, our NCI-designated centers or a very well-established um, nonprofit organization that, would, that only specializes in this area. Um, so that, um, that's really very important. 
And most importantly, um, as we are about to conclude the program, I don't want anyone to feel you're alone in coping with melanoma or any type of cancer or any concerns that you may have. We want you to know that you're now part of a very large community of support. There are lots of organizations out there. You also have your healthcare team that consists of many, many different disciplines to help you. And um, we want you to take advantage of all of those teams. I want to thank you very much for your participation today. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.